welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 70, headlined by a light heavyweight matchup between Ryan Spann and Nikita Krylov. Very high stakes Light heavyweight matchup there. Obviously, we got a bunch of stuff playing out at the top of the division with Jamal Hill just securing the title last month. Obviously, whoever is able to pick up a win this weekend stamps himself in a very solid spot to potentially fight for that gold, possibly by the end of this year. I want to give a quick shout out to Mac McClung, an overnight sensation winning the slam dunk competition this past week. And obviously this is an MMA podcast, but I had to represent the Philadelphia 76ers as an ode to obviously my favorite player, Allen Iverson, but also to Mac McClung coming into the dunk off as the uh, dark horse and absolutely tearing the roof off the place. Uh, I believe out of the 20 scores that he got, only one of them was not a 50. And that just showcases that, you know, that I always thought that the dunk contest was a, was a, you know, just, we don't have to worry about it anymore, but he brought some excitement back to it. So shout out to him uh quickly before we get into the breakdowns obviously i want to go over uh the last event real quick nine and two on predictions uh would have been ten and one had evan elder not gotten his shit opened up uh with that uh, knee from sadikov in that third round all three judges had evan elder up two nothing going into that third round he probably could have could have got his hand raised lock of the night comes through with uh jamal pogues winning that fight a little bit sweatier than i would have liked but he comes through and then dog the night Jamal Emmer is coming through as well very happy with his performance very happy to uh shut up some of the people that were giving me crap for picking the Emmer side there saying how could you fade a 23 and 0 Russian well that's why guys that's why because 23 and 0 doesn't mean anything until you fight in the UFC against UFC level competition so that pushes the uh lock of the night uh predictions this year to 12 and 2 obviously that includes regional and and bellator as well and then the dog of the night uh predictions uh improved to 6 and 7 uh for anybody following my bet mma tips page i did decided to go back onto it to uh, start tracking my lock of the night plays and every so often i'll be throwing my dog of the night play on there as well so for jamal pogues i had four units at minus 240 that cashes for 1.67 units so if you want to keep following on there you guys are welcome to do so that wasn't the only bright moment of the weekend as the there was a plenty of uh regional events going on from the challenger series to lfa to fury fc and lfa was a mighty good time as well as a minus 150 Lock of the night play comes through when Arian Young pulls off a great performance over Lauren Th- uh, Thibodeau. And uh, dog of the night play, plus 240, I believe it was, on Justin Loveridge over Christian Turner. Beautiful play there as well. Uh, we had another underdog uh, later on in that card pull off the episode who's escaping me at this moment. But uh, if you guys are looking for LFA breakdowns, as well as Fury FC, PFL Challenger Series, Cage Warriors, uh, CFFC, you can find that all on the Patreon. Link in the description below. Best bets and props article for all of those promotions, including UFC, Bellator, and Contender Series once that starts up again. So make sure you guys check that out. All right. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right in to the breakdowns that we have this weekend. Kicking things off in the bantamweight division, we got 15-7 and seven, Jose Johnson making his UFC debut, going up against 8-3 and three, Garrett Armfield. 
starting off on the Jose Johnson side, it seems like the second time was the charm for him as he earned his contract on his second appearance on the Contender Series. The first time around, he fell short as a big favorite against Ronnie Lawrence, but looking back at it in hindsight, seems like it was a pretty viable loss for him that we can cut him some slack for. But managed to pick up a couple wins and then eventually made another appearance on the Contender Series this past season and came in as a pretty much a pick em odds against Jack Cartwright. He dealt with the grapple-heavy approach pretty effectively as he was very offensive off of his back when taken down and looking for opportunities to either throw up submissions or work back to his feet so that he can get back to his bread and butter, which is his striking. He's very long, he's very rangy for this division and he's able to pick opponents apart from distance, uses kicks up the middle to try to make maintain his range and is very effective in terms of not not knocking you out with one shot but putting together a combination of strikes to accumulate damage on his opponent he's a solid all-around fighter and obviously he's developing at a very solid rate but i wonder what his ceiling is considering the lack of takedown defense that he shows obviously he makes up for a lot of it by getting back to his feet and looking for reversal opportunities but i think the higher steps up in competition that he takes it's going to get harder and harder for him to work back to his feet so Let's nip that in the bud. Let's try to work on that takedown defense a little bit more so fights don't hit the ground as often. And then from there, he can maximize his win opportunities by utilizing his combination, striking his kicks and maintaining his distance. On the flip side for Garrett Armfield, he fell short in his short notice debut against David Onama, which was actually a rematch of a match that took place in their amateur ranks. On the amateur ranks, David Onama was able to outstrike Garrett Armfield, but I come to find out that Garrett Armfield actually has a bit of a wrestling background, and you see it on display throughout the rest of his professional career, and you really wonder that if he had implemented it in their amateur fight, would he have come out on top? But he made a decent account of himself in that first round, having some success with takedowns and top control. But it looked like that, uh, you know, how much these guys have grown has really played into an effect as to why David Onama ended up winning that fight. Onama obviously finds himself in the featherweight division now, a bigger fighter than Armfield, who participates in the bantamweight division and we saw in the second round the short notice aspect of this fight come into play with armfield slowing down but most importantly really not getting the better of the grappling and clinch situations as david onama looked to be the much stronger opponent in that uh, in those scenarios well armfield is a solid all-around fighter he uses uh takedowns very well he throws in combinations uh his footwork is pretty good his durability is not too bad either and the fact that he's training with the guys over there at Killcliffe fc gives me hope that at 26 years old we're going to continue to see an improved version of him every single time out the funny thing is both these guys actually have a loss to Ronnie Lawrence on their record so they know what it's what it's like to go through a guy who grinds as much as Ronnie Lawrence and I'm hoping that Armfield can take a couple of things from that type of game plan and apply it here against Jose Johnson. I do expect uh, Johnson to have a little bit of a striking advantage here but I think that Armfield will do a good enough job in terms of mixing his overall MMA game and showcasing that he has a lot of potential. I believe he has a lot of potential and I was one of the few guys that gave him a, even a bit of a shot against David Onama in that short notice fight but had I known that the strength would play as big of a factor as it did in that fight I probably wouldn't have had as much confidence but as we saw in David Onama's preceding fights that this guy can be beaten as Nate Landwehr 
was showing us that evening. But Garrett Arnfield, I think he has pretty good potential, and I look forward to seeing what kind of wrinkles he's added to his game this weekend. This is a fun and interesting fight between two prospects of the division. I really like the Garrett Armfield side here, considering that he's a very solid all-around fighter. His striking looks to be up to par, and I believe that his striking will eventually set up those takedowns that I think that he'll eventually need to control Jose Johnson in most of these spots. Johnson will be working well off of his back, and I think he'll create some get-ups and reversals for himself, but I think ultimately Garrett Armfield will continuously get those positions back and control the majority of this fight en route to a decision victory. In the next fight, we stick with the bantamweight division, but we flip on over to the women's side of things here as we have 7-2 Haley Cowan taking on 7-2 Aileen Perez. Now, starting off on the Haley Cowan side, she earned her contract with the UFC through the Contender Series in a pretty lackluster performance against uh, Amanda Leite, I believe the opponent's name was. But uh, that was a back-and-forth fight where both women had success in the grappling realm, and I I don't know. It was a close enough fight that you could have potentially scored it the other way. But Cowan showcases that her athleticism and her strength is a big factor as to why she ends up getting her hand raised at least seven times throughout her nine fight professional MMA career. She comes from a gymnastics background and you can see it in the way that she moves and how athletic and fluid she is in the striking realm when she's able to traverse the cage and utilize her length. But she more often than not gets herself going in the grappling realm. She ties her opponents up and tries to use her strength uh, to muscle these women to the ground and then do you know, I wouldn't say she does crazy amount of work from on top, but she does enough to control these opponents, grind them out, and either take home a decision victory or eventually get a late finish. But you see her losses coming from the fights where she, you know, utilizes her strength more than she does her technique, which puts her into bad positions and allows opponents to throw up submissions and get her out of there. And I think that's going to continue to plague her throughout her career. I just don't think that she has that... <clears throat> that that technical discipline to be safe enough from on top uh, to not overextend herself from on top and putting herself into positions where she can either get submitted or get reversed and then her bottom game just doesn't really really look the best to me either if I were her coaches, I would get her to try to believe in her, her striking a little bit more. You know, she, like I said, she moves very fluidly from the outside. She has decent speed and good explosiveness that she can crash the pocket when she needs to, to really get off on some big strikes, land some good damage and make it look good for the judges. But she seems so tied up in wanting to get fights into the grappling realm. And that's where I think that she can run into some troubles. And I think once she realizes that at the UFC level, she might look to refine her game and try to get more of her striking going so that she can stay safe at distance while still dishing out maximum amount of damage on the flip side for Eileen Perez it was unfortunate that she had to take such a uh, a change in opponent on short notice in her UFC debut she was originally scheduled to fight Zara Farron back at UFC Paris in September but I believe it, either the week of the fight or the week before the fight uh, Farron was forced out of the fight and Farron a striker uh, gets replaced by a Olympic-level judoka and Stephanie Ager. Completely different than what Eileen Perez was originally uh, preparing for. And although Eileen had some good success in that first round with some takedowns, some top control, some good striking success as well, it was eventually the uh, the experience level of Stephanie Ager and her ability to 
it changed momentum into her favor, especially in grappling realms that allowed her to get that top position, eventually get some dominant positions, and then eventually get that submission to get her hand raised. Perez, she was just beating up on complete tomato cans on the regional scene, but she showcased good enough top control, good aggressiveness, and the fact that she's like a legitimate fighter, that she could have some success against maybe the top 20 to top 15 of this UFC division. I I don't mind what I see from her. Like she has some rawness to her game still, similar to Haley Cowan, but she does a really good job in terms of, you know, muscling herself into good positions and, you know, landing better takedowns uh, and just getting into that top position and having good crushing top control. You know, she does a good job in terms of uh, transitioning from, you know, uh, full guard to side control to half guard, all those positions. And then from there, she's able to find that dominant position required where she can posture up and start raining down big shots i don't have a huge ceiling for her but i love the tools that she brings to the table here uh, whenever she steps in the cage especially with her aggressiveness and ability to push the pressure uh, and i'd say most importantly her willingness to engage she's not shy to crash the pocket when she needs to when she feels she has to secure a takedown to start swaying the round back into her favor or at least try to get that dominant position required to try to push and finish fights Going into taping this fight, I didn't think I'd have any action on it, but God, it's hard not to go with Eileen Perez here, especially with her being the underdog. And who knows, probably by fight time, considering the amount of love I'm already seeing out there for her, she might end up going into this fight as the favorite. Both women are physically imposing, and Haley Cowan looks to be the one in better shape considering how sculpted and ripped she looks. But I think that Perez is just as strong and can more dominantly uh, implement her grappling game, which I think Cowan is going to struggle with here. Again, Cowan, she might be the better striker, at least technically speaking, but I think Perez's ability to engage and uh, the willingness to crash that pocket and force her opponent to fight will cause Cowan some distress. It will cause her some frustration. And I think at a certain point, Perez will be able to get a dominant enough position to pound out uh, Haley Cowan here en route to a finish and her first win in the UFC. Going up to the men's lightweight division, we got 20 and 11 Rafael Alves going up against UFC debutante and 8 and 0 Nurillo Aliyev. Starting off on the Alves side, he started his UFC career off on a pretty big blunder. One of the biggest misses in UFC history. I believe he missed weight by 11 and a half pounds. Obviously, that fight with Pat Sabatini ended up getting scrapped. However, he's done a decent enough job of uh, re reshaping his image in the UFC as a very exciting and explosive fighter. He's put together a 1-2 and two record since that whole debacle, but every time he goes out there and fights, he puts on a good show, even if he ends up losing. His last fight against Drew Dober is a perfect example of that, where he had some decent success of his own in that first round, but... As a victim to his style, he starts to slow down in the second and third rounds. And that's where Drew Dober was able to pressure him, work the body, and eventually find that liver shot to put him down in that third round. But Alves showcased in the Mark D. A. Casey fight just how dangerous he can be in the early goings of fights as he latched onto that guillotine choke and submitted Mark D. A. Casey all within 30 to 35 seconds, I believe it was. He's a powerful fighter. He throws everything into his shots and he loves to throw flashy technique with a lot of power as well. But as I said, he is a victim to that style because he starts to slow down the later that fights go. And if you're a, a, a disciplined and technical enough opponent, you can kind of read the shots that are coming your way early, time up, suck him energy, suck his energy dry, and from there really start to take over as fights get into deep water. 
I, I love him as a fighter. He's always entertaining, like I said. But I just don't think he has a very high ceiling considering his, you know, his lack of awareness with his managing his cast tank. He's just so explosive, so powerful, and always thinking that he can finish his opponents uh, relatively quickly. And then he falls victim, like I said, to his cardio issues and his gas tank issues. He's won some fights in the second and third rounds on the regional scene, but I really question the level of competition that he was beating on that on those uh, or on those nights compared to what he's going to be facing when he continues to fight UFC level competition and that style is just not going to work I would love to see him to take the the Davison Figueredo approach when Figueredo won that uh, decision against Brandon Moreno uh, he he chopped the leg of his opponents very methodically very disciplined and would just burst every now and then it's not like he's bursting every 10 to 15 seconds and Figueredo was able to sustain uh, or sustain sorry his cardio over 25 minutes and pick up that win over Moreno in their third fight by decision if Alves can harness some of that type of game plan by being more disciplined and being more patient I think he gives himself way more chances of winning fights but that's just not Rafael Alves. On the flip side for Nurulu Aliyev, he made his, uh, well, he earned his contract to the UFC through the Contender Series, where he put away Josh Wick relatively easily halfway through the round, halfway through the first round of their fight. I remember breaking down that fight for my Patreon members, and the first sentence that I put was, I feel sorry for whatever poor soul gets matched up with this monster, because the man is a monster. He's very methodical with his takedowns. He chain wrestles very well. He doesn't give up on his shots. And usually when he gets you to the ground, he just stays patient, waits for his moments to posture up. And then from on top, he just absolutely decimates his opponents. Now, he hasn't gotten many finishes on the regional scene. And I think he was a little bit, you know, a little bit more incentivized to go for the finish against Josh Wick. But he got the position he needed. He kept uh, pushing Josh Wick's head up against the cage uh, when he had him on the ground and then eventually was able to posture up and unload bombs to eventually get that stoppage. But the fact that he went to several decisions on the regional scene against decent level of competition, uh, it gives me hope that he has good cardio. It gives me hope that he can continuously get fights to the ground and grind these guys out over 15 minutes if that's what he needs because he's that good from on top. He's still relatively, you know, green in his career being 8-0, but I still think that the fundamentals that he shows with his wrestling game, his chain wrestling, and his patience and confidence from on top will take him far in the UFC. So I, I like what I see from Aliyev. I think he has a very high ceiling, and I look forward to seeing what he's able to do with his first couple fights in the UFC. Usually I'm a little bit skeptical about guys that are 8-0 coming into the UFC, but this Aliyev kid seems to have all the chops that I like. I like that he can go a full 15 minutes if he needs to to grind out his opponents. I like that he can go out there and posture up and get a quick finish if he needs to as well. Obviously, those finishes are going to get harder to come by at this UFC level. And although his regional scene hasn't had a lot of finishes, I think we'll see the progress of the potential finishes incoming, especially with this skill set and especially getting uh, used to the fact of fighting higher, higher level of competition. The early going of this matchup is going to be tough, right? I, I fully expect uh, Alves to have some success, maybe even hurt Aliyev at a certain point. But I think that Aliyev's durability is good enough. I think that he'll be able to change his or 
wrestling attempts together well and i think eventually he's going to start to land those takedowns they'll start to come easier as the fight goes on and you'll be able to ground out hafiel alves from on top i'm gonna go Narillo Aliyev by decision. Sticking with the UFC lightweights, we're going to go with Joe Selecki, who comes in at 12 and 3. He takes on short notice replacement 17 and 5, Carl Deaton III. Starting off on the Joe Selecki side, I gotta say that I am not the most impressed with him five fights into his UFC career. Now, I've bet on three of his fights and uh, cashed pretty much every single time. Obviously, uh, bet him as a favorite against Jim Miller, had him as a parlay piece against Austin Hubbard, and then I faded him against Jared Gordon, cashing all three times. I decided to stay away from his next fight against Alex De Silva, as I thought that was a trickier fight than uh, most people expected going into it, and it played out that way. Had it not been for Alex De Silva getting that point taken away in the second round, he likely would have ended up winning that fight. And I'm very surprised at the lack of jujitsu game that we see from Joe Selecki off of his back. And I think that's kind of the issue that he's had is that, you know, he's been touted as this high level BJJ guy and he does great work when he's on top of his opponents or when he has the back. But when he's the one on the ground, you don't really see submission, uh, you know, himself trying to create submission opportunities, reversal opportunities, or even opportunities to get back to his feet. And that's just too big of a red flag for me for a guy that, you know, is usually a, um, a chalky favorite, just as he is this weekend. Uh, you know, maybe we, we see the skill difference this weekend if he's just that much better than his opponent where he's able to get these guys to the ground and then just submit them relatively quickly. But the lack of striking game and the lack of work off of his back just doesn't sit well with me. And that's kind of my big hold up with him. Maybe he improves. Maybe we see a better version of him this weekend. Um, but for a long-term perspective, I just don't know what the... Uh, I actually, I think that the ceiling of Joe Selecki is likely around that top 20 to top 25 of the stacked UFC lightweight division. Going over to the other side, the short notice Carl Deaton comes in with 22 fights of experience, and you can see that in his fights. He is a solid all-around fighter. He throws in combinations, never really overextends. A very disciplined technical striker, throws with a lot of heat in his shots as well, and it seems like he's starting to improve the grappling aspect of his game. His second last loss came at the hands of a guy that was looking to get him to the ground over and over again, grind him out, put him into bad positions, put him into submission spots as well. But Deaton, the veteran, was able to stay composed in those spots, not get finished, but still ended up getting grinding, grinded out and losing that fight. That fight took place about three and a half years ago, so I'm expecting to see a better version of Deaton in the grappling room, and although he showed some good grappling chops in his last couple fights, I just don't think that Justin James in 2022, nor his last opponent, whose name is kind of escaping me at the moment, uh, those guys are not good representations of what Deaton is going to be going up against when he makes his jump to the UFC this weekend. I think that he could maybe pick up a couple wins against the bottom of the barrel lightweight guys but i'm just not fully sold that this guy has what it takes to you know make it to the the ranked portions of the the lightweight division also important to note is that he is jumping in on short notice here but he was actually scheduled to compete a day before on the 24th uh, for a different promotion so it's not like he's just hopping off the couch and and jumping into this fight and coming in ill prepared maybe the 
the stylistic approach and uh, of his opponent has changed, but the fact that he's in shape, ready to go, and ready to make this 155-pound weight class, I think that showcases that he's uh, prepared to come into this fight and maybe even pull off the upset. Who knows? Originally, I was just happy to be like, you know what? Go ahead and throw in Joe Selecki, minus 500 into whatever parlay you want, because Carl Deaton will have no answers for him. But as you get into that tape of Joe Selecki, like I said during his breakdown, it's just not the nicest on the eyes. You know, there's a lot of red flags, and there are things that Carl Deaton could potentially take advantage of here. If he's able to stuff a couple of the takedowns, if he's able to even land a takedown of his own, he might be able to beat up on Joe Selecki here and make it look better for the judges. I personally think Selecki needs to get this fight to the ground as early as possible and look for a submission. Try to get uh, Deaton out of their ASAP because the longer that this fight goes, the more opportunities you're giving Deaton to win this fight. I'm still predicting Joe Selecki to win this fight. I just don't have as much confidence in it, but I'll be looking to attack that submission prop as I think that would be the best way to play Selecki in this fight. He should win this with his wrestling, with his top control, but be very wary in terms of playing a fighter like this at the heavy chalk that he's at. Jumping down to the flyweight division, we got 11-5 O'Day Osborne going up against short notice replacement 13-3 Charles Johnson. Starting off on the O'Day Osborne side, he's hoping to bounce back after a devastating knockout loss last time around to the hands of Tyson Nam. That night, O'Day Osborne was a minus 380-ish, almost minus 400 favorite as a lot of people continue to overlook the power and striking of Tyson Nam, not to mention the veteran experience that he brings to the table. And O'Day Osborne unfortunately learned that harsh reality that night in San Diego. I believe that was back in August. But here he is back going up against Charles Johnson. And although he was scheduled to fight Dennis Bondere, we know Osborne is more than prepared to take on any opponent at this point in time, especially if he's able to go out there and right the wrong of his last fight. I still believe, you know, even these many fights into Osborne's career that he still shows some green tendencies. You know, he really got away with his physical attributes in the early goings of his professional MMA career, which is why he was able to make it to the UFC in the first place. But we've saw in the couple of losses that he's taken, and even that one close decision that he won against CJ Vergara, that he still needs to sharpen up some of the technical aspects of his game. Because he can't just go out there and muscle these guys around or try to use his speed all the time because that starts to dwindle as fights go on. If you're not able to get your opponent out of there quickly, like he was able to do against Zaruka Dashev or even Jerome Rivera, uh, I think he really starts to slow down. And, and you see that in the CJ Vergara fight. But also he makes a lot of striking defense mistakes like he did against Tyson Ham. He throws a naked flying knee and then just expects that Tyson Ham is going to just move away. But Tyson Ham stood his ground, countered effectively, and we saw what happened with Oday Osborne going out cold that night. Oday does a decent enough job of trying to maintain his distance by fighting from range and using his head movement to stay on the outside. But outside of that, you know, I, I think he heavily relies on his speed and power to get his hand raised, but a more technically sound fighter is always going to be able to beat him. Speaking of technically sound, we got Charles Johnson on the other side here, who I'm a big fan of. I, I think that he's a very skilled fighter, and he showcased even in a defeat against Mohamed Makayev that his takedown defense is on point, and you know, he just didn't do enough in terms of getting away from uh, Makayev and implementing his striking game, but I think just the threat of the takedown kind of muzzled him that night. But Johnson has picked up a couple solid victories since that matchup, most recently last month in January, where he was able to dispatch of Jimmy Flick in impressive fashion. 
Johnson is a long, lanky striker, similar to his opponent this weekend, but I think he showcases better combination striking, better technical uh, work with that striking, but also very good footwork to get in and out of range of his opponents. He showcases, like I said, very good takedown defense, so if that's a path that his opponent chooses this weekend, I think that he'll be prepared for that. But I think his cardio is something that he likes to weaponize as well by putting on a solid pace in the early goings of his fights and then kind of turning up the heat uh, in deeper water waters. We've seen him go a full 25 minutes on numerous occasions, and I think that's going to help him in these you know, high-level 15-minute fights that he's going to have against UFC-level competition. I think he has a solid ceiling. You know, I think he could potentially make it to the top 10 if he continues to progress at the rate that he's at, and I think he has a very like a reliable style, especially when he's confident enough in terms of pulling the trigger. I'm not sure the hesitancy that he had in the Zagas Zumagula fight in terms of pulling the trigger, but I hope that we see him go back to, uh, you know, kicking, throwing punches and bunches, and maintaining his distance with his footwork in this fight because I think that will be very beneficial for him. I think this is a great fight for Johnson to showcase that the technical aspects of his game are far superior to, than to what Ode Osborne brings to the table. Yes, Ode might have a little bit of speed there, but I think that Charles will be able to match it. I think that Rode might have the physicality and the athleticism advantage here, but I think that doesn't matter when you're dealing with the fighter that is technically better than you. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see O'Day look to drag this fight to the ground, but as we already know, the Charles Johnson takedown defense is on point, and even better is his get-up game, which I think that O'Day will struggle in terms of keeping a guy like this on the mat. And then in terms of the cardio advantage, I think that Johnson will start to pull away as this fight starts to go deeper and deeper into the rounds, and I think he'll paint a picture on O'Day Osborne's face with combination striking, staying in his face, putting the pressure on him, pushing the pace, and eventually winning this fight by decision. Going back to the men's lightweight division, we got Jordan Levitt coming in with a 10-2 and record, going up against Victor Martinez, who comes in with a 13-4 and record. Starting off on the Jordan Levitt side, I'm still a little bit confused as to how this guy made it to the UFC. Now, I don't want to completely shit on him because I think he's very good in terms of making what his what he has work for him. And what he has is a very solid top game, especially when he's able to land takedowns and control his opponents from on top he has a crafty jiu-jitsu game where he's able to pull off reversals stay active off of his back if he is the one on his back but his striking game very limited like you you see this a lot with fighters that are not comfortable in the striking realm they just try to maintain their distance and use kicks to keep their opponents at distance so that they can stay active enough and consistent enough to make it look to the judges that they're working and and trying to inflict damage and trying to stay busy uh, and being the more effective fighter but there's no, you know, if ands, or buts about it. Jordan Levitt wants to get fights to the ground. That's how he's able to control these guys and win larger portions of their fight because he's able to get to get them to the ground and just be so heavy from on top. But if you're able to stop his takedowns and be the more effective striker, like Claudio Poyas was, you're able to beat a guy like Jordan Levitt. So you don't really have too much to worry about from the Levitt side if you're able to traverse the cage well, stick on the outside beat him up when he tries to close the distance or at least counter most of his kicking game because he leaves himself very open to get hit as his hands usually aren't in the best defensive position when he's throwing his kicks. I'm, again, mystified that he's still at this level, but he'll be able to beat up on some of the lower level guys in the division. You know, obviously the the Matt Sales who are no longer in the UFC, the Matt Wymans, the uh, uh, the Trey Ogdens, like he's going to beat those guys. But 
Claudio Poyas showcased if you can just keep this at a good enough range, if you can stop the takedowns, you'll more than likely have the advantage over him. Flipping on over to the Victor Martinez side, he's coming back after a year and a half layoff after picking up a contract on the Dana White Contender Series back in 2021 with the win over Jacob Rosales. He was able to stop a couple takedowns and land the more effective strikes on the feet. He throws in good combinations and usually has his feet under him so he showcases good balance, never really overextending to get countered too effectively by his opponents. He's a Fortis MMA product, and you guys obviously know that I have a bit of a hard-on for those guys because of how uh, well-coached they are by General Safe Sayud, and I think that's going to continue to help Martinez, especially at this high level. Martinez is the former Fury FC lightweight champion, although he never defended it, but at least he has some uh, hardware on his mantle to showcase that he's been successful on the regional level, but where he really wants to make his stamp is at the UFC level, and I think with this skill set, he's... he's he's capable of it he throws in consistent combinations he pressures his opponents and puts them on their back foot more often than not and he has a high tight guard so it makes it very uh, difficult for his opponents to counter him or try to hit him with the big shot that's going to put him on wobbly legs i'm curious to know if the ring rust from his layoff will affect him this weekend but i think he has a good enough opponent here in jordan levitt that he could potentially pick up a win in his ufc debut I've come to grips that the only way I'll ever back Jordan Levitt is if he has a decided advantage in terms of the grappling and the takedowns over his opponent. That is not the case here with Victor Martinez. Martinez is a very composed uh, striker that throws in combinations. Like I said, he moves very well, very balanced with his attacks as well, never really overextending, giving his opponents an opportunity to close the distance with a counter of their own or a level change to potentially take him to the ground. But I've seen nothing but calmness, composure, and discipline for Martinez when he has hit the mat, but he does a good job of working back to his feet and then getting back to his handiwork. I think he is a far superior striker here compared to Jordan Levitt, and whenever you see Levitt throwing those kicks, I fully expect Martinez to be countering with a combination of his own, which will start to discourage Jordan Levitt, and I think, you know, Levitt, very durable. I think it's going to be hard to put him away, but I think that we'll see Martinez put together a good striking showcase here to get his hand raised by decision. Let's head on over to the women's flyweight division as the prelim headliner here, where we got 7-2 and two Canadian Jasmine Jasduvisius going up against UFC debutante 8-1 Gabriela Fernandez. Starting off on the Jasduvisius side, she fumbled a bag as a pretty solid favorite last time around against Natalia Silva, but I believe a lot of that had to do with not a lot of people being familiar with Silva, and unfortunately, Jazz Duvicius found out that night that Silva had a lot more to offer than she was expecting. Jazz Duvicius is a long, lanky fighter for this 125-pound division, but she doesn't utilize her range effectively that much because she prefers to get into the pocket, grab a hold of you, drag you to the ground, and overpower you with her strength. She's very strong from that top position, and she does a good job in terms of holding her opponents down, although I believe she could still use a little bit of work with the technical aspects of her wrestling game. I, I'm not saying that she's a horrible wrestler by any means, but I think that there were a couple adjustments that she could have made against Natalia Silva to eventually get that fight to the ground. But Silva proved to be too much for her that night. Silva had great footwork, great cardio, good takedown defense, and most importantly, I'm going to reiterate it, the footwork aspect of it. She was moving very well from the outside, crashed the pocket and got off on her strikes quickly so that she can pivot back off and not allow Jasmine to get a hold of her. Jasmine did manage to push her up against the cage a couple times during that fight, but was unsuccessful in getting deep enough on a takedown attempt to get Natalia Silva to the ground. 
But I, I still think that Jazz Dovisius has a lot to offer for this division, as I think her strength will be a big key for her to winning her fights. That's a big portion of a lot of uh, women's MMA fights, just as we saw this past weekend. You know, I thought that Jessica Andrade was going to be the stronger opponent compared to Aaron Blanchfield. But as we saw that fight spill into the second round, we saw that once Aaron was able to get uh, Jessica to the ground, she was able to pass the dominant position relatively easily and then eventually get that finish. I don't think that Jazz DeVicius is as clean or smooth on the ground as uh, uh, Aaron Blanchfield, but she's very tough and heavy from that top position where she's able to stay active enough that referees normally don't split them up or force them to stand up. But if she can just tinker her striking game a little bit more, get her opponents to uh, respect her a little bit more in that realm, it'll allow the takedowns to come a little bit easier her, uh, easier for her, and it'll allow her to be more effective and more dominant in her fights. Flipping on over to the former interim LFA flyweight champion side of things, Gabrielle Fernandez comes into the UFC uh, with a very solid 8-1 record. Her only loss coming to former contender series alum uh, Maria Silva. I believe that was only Fernandez's second fight, and uh, since then, she's never looked back. She's put together uh, seven straight victories. She looks very good uh, with her striking. She comes from a boxing background, as you can see when she throws in combinations. Her opponents feel the damage, they feel the consistency of her strikes, and they give her a lot of respect. My red flag with Fernandez comes with her ground game. Like, we don't really see many opponents uh, effectively or, you know, properly trying to chase takedowns. As, you know, there was a, a, I think it was a Polish woman that she was fighting who was just going in for very telegraphed uh, desperation shots. And Fernandez was able to pivot away really easily and get it back out into space where she can dictate the, the pace of the fight with her combination striking and her range management. Even her last couple of opponents, Fernandez, you know, her last opponent, uh, the, the woman's name is escaping me right now, Martins, but she was content with just allowing Fernandez to operate at space, operate in that uh, that distance that's going to allow her to get off on strikes and get away from any type of counter that's coming back her way. It's the fight before that, the Edna Oliveira fight, where Fernandez, uh, you know, she wasn't taken down with a traditional takedown i believe it was more so of a like a weird slip just a weird scenario that allowed edna to get on top of fernandez and she spent a solid minute and a half to two minutes just controlling fernandez from on top and edna is a much smaller and i'd even say weaker opponent than fernandez and it showcased that fernandez was really struggling to get off of her back I wonder what it looks like when she's fighting somebody that is legitimately trying to take her down has better takedown offense and will likely be able to hold her down and keep Fernandez away from her handiwork, which is the best part of her game, the bread and butter of her game, which is her striking. So I, I think Fernandez could have some success at the UFC level, given her discipline and technical approach with her striking and her ability to manage distance. But when somebody puts the pressure on her, forces her to grapple, I'm curious to see what she looks like. Like I said, the, the jury is still out in terms of Fernandez's takedown defense, and I think we'll find out how good it really is here against a girl like Jazz Davisius, who's going to be looking to implement that type of game plan going into this fight. Uh, you know, the striking of Jazz Davisius could still use a little bit of improvement. That's where I obviously think Fernandez will have the advantage here, but I fully expect Jazz Davisius to cross the pocket, keep Fernandez on her back foot, engage in the clinch, hopefully not long enough, because I think that Fernandez could dish out more 
damage in those clinch positions. But if Justavicius can get in on a single leg, a double leg, drag this fight to the ground, I was not at all impressed with Fernandez's abilities off of her back. And Justavicius could potentially exploit that, use that to her advantage, and control this fight en route to a decision victory. I am not that confident at all about it, as I'm concerned about Jazdovicius's mind frame, especially after that last fight against Natalia Silva, where she struggled to get the fight to the ground. But if she can come in confident, if she can set up those takedowns correctly, I believe she'll be able to get this fight to the ground and utilize that to her advantage, like I said, en route to a decision victory. The UFC could not have picked a better fight to kick off the main card, which goes down in the lightweight division between 14-7, and 7, Eric Gonzalez going up against 7-0, and 0, Trevor Peak. Starting off on the Gonzalez side, it's been a very tough go for him in the UFC thus far, going 0-2 in his first fights and getting finished in both of those fights. The first one, a short notice spot against Jim Miller, where he got, uh, had, or actually he had some early success in the first round, but then eventually started to fall off and Jim Miller was able to take advantage, eventually finishing him in the opening minute of that second round. Next up, Gonzalez had to go up against Terrence McKenney, where he's showcasing some good striking, but eventually it was McKenney's grappling that got him into a bad position, and McKenney was able to get the tap. Gonzalez is a pretty big and long fighter for this lightweight division, and he uses combinations decently, but I still think he lacks some of the technical aspects of the striking game, which allow opponents to get out ahead of him, especially if they're able to land on the chin and put him down. He's lost to guys like Rafa Garcia and even Humberto Bandanay on the regional scene. And I just don't think that this guy is really UFC level. I don't really know what he is best at. I'd probably say the striking aspect of mixed martial arts. And he doesn't look to grapple often, but I'd be curious to see how effective he could be if he's able to get fights to the ground and grind his opponents out from on top, especially if he could have some sort of advantage in that round. But I haven't seen it. He seems to be more of a striker. He likes to throw down with his opponents, but that usually is the downfall of why he ends up losing his fights. Losing his fights. Sorry. Moving on to the Trevor Peak side here, uh, absolute madman. This this guy is, uh, you know, this was Dana White's quintessential contender series fighter. A guy that showcases good heart, good durability, and just wants to knock your head into orbit. That's what Trevor Peak has done throughout his professional MMA career, and. Seven opponents have tried. None of them have succeeded in terms of giving getting Trevor Peak out of there. This guy just marches forward and throws everything into every single shot. He doesn't try to set anything up with a jab. He doesn't try to set up even some of his takedown attempts. He just blindly goes in there and tries to bull rush his opponents. But it's clear that he just wants to try to strike with you and try to knock you the hell out. I think that's going to severely cap his potential. And I don't think he'll get anywhere near the top 25 of this division. But you'll be able to beat some of the guys at the top or, or the bottom of this division that are willing to exchange in the pocket with him because he's shown case solid durability. Although Malik Lewis almost had him out of there in their contender series fight, he showcased good heart and durability and was able to come back in that second round and eventually finish his opponent. But if guys want to, uh, you know, oblige with him and throw down in the pocket, I wouldn't give them a good enough chance in terms of walking out on the other side. But a better technical striker might be able to take advantage of those openings Trevor leaves because, you know, as I've spoken about a couple of people earlier on this podcast, like uh, Victor Martinez, they, they don't overextend. They keep their feet under them. They're throwing in combinations and they're being balanced the entire time. Peak is the complete opposite of that. 
Peek is a guy that, you know, will lean over his strikes. Well, you'll see him off balance more often than not because he's just trying to throw the world's worth of strength into every single punch. And I think that's going to cause him, uh, you know, some some troubles at the highest level of mixed martial arts. He's shown some good basics in terms of the grappling realm, but I know for a, a fact that he prefers to just throw down and try to knock you out. His cardio is not the greatest, in my opinion. I believe that the reason he beat Malik Lewis last time is because Malik gassed himself out trying to finish Trevor Peak in that first round. And Peak was just, you know, sustaining damage, but also uh, slowly getting his energy reserves back so that he could be the fresher fighter in the second round, which is why he was able to get the win. But even going back and looking at his Kamal Worthy fight, which was the one right before the Contender Series fight, you see him gassed out, you know, four minutes into that fight. And that's because of what he does. Similar to Rafael Alves, he just goes out there and throws everything into his strikes. And you know, there's nothing that's more tiresome than throwing at air and missing, you know, or just throwing and, and completely missing your opponent because that just requires so much goddamn energy. Uh, I love him as a, a fighter, good entertaining fighter, but I just don't think he has a high ceiling in the UFC. He'll be able to beat some guys, but I'm not sure how far up the ladder we'll actually see him go. Not often are you going to see me picking Trevor Peak to win a fight, especially at the UFC level, but I think this is a fight where he can go out there and exploit the poor striking defense of Eric Gonzalez. But rather than paying the chalk on Trevor Peak, I'd rather pay the chalk on the fight doesn't go to decision. I'd be surprised if either guy looks to grapple in this matchup, and even if Eric Gonzalez looks to grapple later on in this fight, that's possibly where he could have some potential to finish Trevor Peak on the ground, but I expect these guys to slug it out, and I expect one of these guys to eventually fall. If the under one and a half number is good enough, anything better than minus 150, I'd probably take a shot on that. But I'll likely be parlaying the fight doesn't go to decision with a couple other things this weekend. But I do like the Trevor Peak side here. His power, his somewhat reliable durability should be enough for him to eventually close that distance, crash the pocket, and find that big knockout here over Eric Gonzalez. Moving up to the welterweight division, we're going to be talking about 8-1-1 Mike Malott going up against 9-1 Johan Lainess. Starting off on the Mike Malott side of things here, we got a very solid technical striker, technical fighter actually, overall fighter. He's a great overall fighter, uh, trying to pick up his second win in the UFC. He made a successful UFC debut uh, back in April of 2022 where he was able to defeat Mickey Gall in a, a bit of a war. Mickey had a little bit of success of his own in the early goings, but it was the te technical striking of Mike Malad which allowed him to take advantage of the openings that Mickey Gall was leaving in the striking room and allowed Malad to get his hand raised by knockout that night. But I've been hearing about this Mike Malad kid for close to 10 years now. He actually competed on one of the events that I helped run back in two, uh, sorry, yeah, in 2013, I believe it was, or 20. 12 i can't recall the exact year um but uh, we couldn't find anybody to fight this guy like nobody wanted to fight this guy and he was only 3-0 at the time uh but we did manage to find a guy uh who stepped in uh, on relatively short notice and Malad dispatched of him in about a minute and a half you could see why people did not want to fight this guy with how fluid how confident and how disciplined he was in all aspects of mma uh, but he ended up losing his next night to uh, Hakeem Duwadu five months later, and that kind of you know deflated the balloon that uh, I was making of Mike Malott, uh, and that kind of started off a weird run for him. Uh, he ended up going to a draw in his uh, next fight. He ended up picking a win on the Canadian regional scene, but he was largely inactive between 2016 and 2020. 
During that time, he had actually moved to Team Alpha Male. He was a Southern Ontario boy uh, here up in Canada, but decided to pick up his things and move to Sacramento, started training with the Team Alpha Male guys, and really took on a coaching approach or a coaching position with those guys. So if you go back and watch those fights between 2016 and 2020 of guys from the, the Team Alpha Male stable, you'll see Mike Malott entrenched in their corner more often than not. And I think that was a very good learning experience for him and a good way for him to kind of break that barrier of making that UFC walk on numerous occasions for the eventual moment that he would. And you saw that he was more than prepared for that in his UFC debut. He's a very dangerous all-around fighter. My only qualm and hold up with him is his possible durability issues. He does leave some openings for his opponents to counter him and possibly put some big power on him. But if he can shore those things up, if he can continue to showcase his durability, he should be able to go out there and out-finesse his opponents and possibly finish them uh, in the second or third rounds of his fights. It's just... Can he deal with the early onslaught from big power punches similar to what his opponents, uh, his opponent this weekend is going to be presenting with him? But I think Malat has a very high ceiling. I think he is very skilled, very disciplined. And if he can just bring all those things together, he's going to be a very difficult opponent for a lot of guys to deal with. Starting on or flipping on over to the Lainess side here, who's coming off a solid decision victory over Darian Weeks last time around. Lainess has started to prove people wrong that he can actually go out there and win decisions. Six out of his nine wins have come inside the distance, although two of those decision victories coming uh, on the regional scene, but showcasing that he can beat a guy like Darian Weeks over 15 minutes uh, must have been very good for his confidence. It was a close fight, could have gone either way, but Lainess was clearly the one landing more the damaging blows on the feet, and I think that's what the judges were trying to favor more and more. Lainess, mainly known as a power puncher and a guy who is able to knock his opponents out, I'm curious to see if he continues to round out the rest of his game. But I have big question marks still about his uh, his cardio. Like in the, the Darian Weeks fight, we saw him manage it well because he was moving well. Darian was kind of allowing him to move well. And that allowed Lainus to manage his uh, energy levels a little bit better. He wasn't able to do that in the Gabe Green fight as Gabe brought the fight to him the entire time. And we saw Lainus slow down in that second round. And we will see other opponents pick up on that tendency from Lainus. And will, they will try to push him and try to drown him in deep waters. My heart and brain really wants to pick Mike Malad in this fight, but it's the durability issues in the early going of this matchup, which gives me concern. I could see this fight finishing inside the distance, no matter who gets their hand raised, which is why that will be my favorite prediction for this matchup, but I am still going to lean with the Mike Malad side. I think we'll see him get his grappling going, and I think we'll see him use his superior jiu-jitsu to try to get into those dominant positions where he could look for finishing opportunities. I think he is, technically speaking, the better striker than Johan Lainez, but I think that Lainez's power kind of makes up for that gap and will cause Malat to be a little bit hesitant in the striking room. But I think at a certain point, he's going to get Johan to believe that this is going to be a slugfest, and just like that, he'll be able to change levels, drag this fight to the ground, and showcase his superior ground game. So the prediction is going to be Mike Malat. I think he does it inside the distance. I'm going to lean more so with the submission more than TKO. But I also like the fight doesn't go to decision the most. It might be a little bit chalky considering how these guys fight. But I think it's going to be worth the squeeze here. But official prediction, I'm going to go with Mike Malat by round two submission. Ladies and gentlemen, it is finally time for the return of the uncrowned flyweight and in the past, possibly strawweight queen, 8-0 Tatiana Suarez. She goes up against 12-7-1 Montana De La Rosa. 
starting off on the Suarez side. There is a lot of hype and potential on the Tatiana Suarez side, but unfortunately, similar to former heavyweight champion Cain Velasquez, Tatiana Suarez has been riddled by injuries and unfortunately has not been able to compete for an extended amount of time. Since she made her UFC debut in July 2016, she's only competed five times since then. But her two fights in 2018 prove why people believe that she's the uncrowned champion. She dominated Alexa Grasso and finished her halfway through the first round, absolutely showcasing her high-level wrestling skills and her ability to dominate her opponents on the ground. In the following fight, she absolutely dominated former champion Carla Esparza at Carla's own game. Carla has long been known as being one of the best wrestlers in the women's strawweight division. Tatiana Suarez said, yeah, cool story, bro. She came in there and absolutely destroyed Carla Esparza. She landed 9 of 11 takedowns and controlled the fight for 13 minutes before she was able to finish uh, Carla Esparza in the closing seconds of that fight. Her level of wrestling is probably some of the best that women's MMA has ever seen. And I'll say specifically MMA wrestling. And I, she's just so good at implementing that top pressure. I've recently heard that she's actually a significant other of one Patchy Mix. And if you guys have been following Bellator, you guys know how good Patchy Mix is. So I'm curious to see how he's able to craft his superior jiu-jitsu into Tatiana, Tatiana Suarez's game. And if that's going to showcase in Suarez's game this weekend. But she is just an, a beast. She is an absolute beast. In five UFC fights, she's landed 23 takedowns. And although she'll be returning at flyweight here compared to where she used to fight before all these injuries, I still think that she'll be very, very uh, successful at this weight class. And amongst the uh, records that she holds over the straw weights, she's she has some crazy stats. I'll give you guys two of them right here. She's number one in terms of control time percentage at 75.3%. Just to put into perspective how dominant that is, second place is Juliana Lima with 37.6% of control time percentage. Crazy. One more for you guys. Top position percentage. She's in first place at 66.1%, while second place is all the way down at 29.1%, which is held by Amanda Cooper. Again, whether she decides to eventually go back down to strawweight or flyweight, I think she wins no matter where she is. And unless she's severely compromised by the injuries and issues she's been dealing with over the last couple of years, I just don't see any way that any fighter is going to be able to beat her. She has the perfect style to defeat the current flyweight champion, and she has an even better style to possibly beat the current strawweight champion as well. Look out for Tatiana Suarez. I am talking very big about her because... Well, she's a minus 800 in this fight. That should let you know how dominant she will potentially be this weekend and how she can continue uh, continue the rest of her UFC career if she stays healthy enough. Starting, uh, flipping on over to the De La Rosa side, I've largely been a fan of De La Rosa, more than, more than others, but I'm starting to see the pattern of which opponents she's able to beat and the opponents that she comes out short against, right? She's being the, the Nadia Kasims of the world. Like, that's where she's getting a win, sir. Ariane Lipskis of the world, where she's able to get these opponents to the ground and grind them out. In a way, she's a very, very, very poor version of Tatiana Suarez. And I emphasize the very because her wrestling is nowhere near on the level of Tatiana Suarez. But that's what De La Rosa tries to implement in most of her fights. She wants to get her opponents to the ground, dominate them from on top, open up submission opportunities, or look for a ground and pound finish. 
And she's effective against the lower level of opponents with that style. But it's not going to work against the higher levels as we've seen, as we saw in the Macy Barber fight last time around. And I was a big fan of her move to from Albuquerque to Colorado so that she can get better trading partners, better coaching. But I think it's, you know, a, a couple fights into that experiment now. And we're really seeing that it's not going to be what it takes for her to get over the hump against a higher level of competition in the UFC. And unfortunately, she's just going to have to stick to being that, you know, top 25 to top 15 fighter uh, in the flyweight division. So, yeah, again, big fan of her, but I just don't see a a high enough ceiling for her to overcome some of the opponents that are going to be put ahead of her in the next couple fights. Do I really have to go on about who I think is going to win this fight? Could you not tell from my fighter backgrounds of this matchup? Tatiana Suarez, by any means necessary. Inside the distance, I'd be surprised if Montana De La Rosa is able to uh, survive the onslaught that's coming away from Tatiana, especially when Tatiana gets those top positions. So uh, Tatiana, Tatiana inside the distance, minus 800. What else do you expect? Moving over to the heavyweight division, we got Augusto Sakai coming in with a 15-5-1 record, going up against Dontel Mays, who comes in with a 9-4 record. Starting off on the Augusto Sakai side of things, he is riding a career-worst 0-4 losing streak right now. He's hoping to bounce back this weekend and showcase that he can still compete against the lowest level of opponent that the UFC can give him. And I'm not trying to disrespect Dante Mays, but I'm saying, sorry, I, I meant specifically the lowest level of opponent that he's been facing over his last five fights. You know, Mays is obviously not on the level of the Sergei Spivaks of the world, but he still presents his own issues that Sakai might end up struggling with. Sakai, at his best, is able to keep fights on the feet and utilize his superior striking, Muay Thai, and power striking, especially in combinations, to discourage and possibly even knock out his opponents. He has a wealth of experience under his belt even before making it to the UFC back in September of 2018. He moves pretty well for a heavyweight, especially for a guy as big as he is, and I love the fact that he throws in combinations. But the one issue that I find with him is his grappling game. When guys want to go out there and try to effectively grapple him, he has no answer for it. Andre, or sorry, uh, Alistair Overeem had tremendous success in their fight, taking him to the ground and eventually finishing him in the main event rounds of that fight. Sergey Spivak had tremendous success taking him down and dominating him, finishing him in the second round. If you can take him down and keep him down, you will more than likely end up winning your fights. That's very concerning for Sakai that he hasn't been able to shore up that aspect of his game, especially 21 fights into his career, especially with the amount of experience that he's had against high-level of opponents. But he's a good striker, he has good enough power in his hands, and at heavyweight, usually that's enough to still get your hand raised. On the flip side for Dontel Mays, I really cannot remember the last time that we've seen the MMA betting community come together with one fighter with Don Mays, and he let them all down very bad. And what I mean by that is the Don Mays and Hamdi Abdel Wahab fight from back at UFC 277, where I believe Mays opened up just around a pick or even as a slight underdog, and everybody and their mother was betting on Don Mays that week, pushing Mays up to about minus 170 by fight time. 
but Mays could not get some of that fight IQ issues that he had away from him. One of those being in the second round where he came in with a very weird striking combination to crash the pocket and it caused him to stumble, allowing Hamdi to end up on top of him and that likely gave up Mays' entire second round. And even in the third round, Mays just could not get away from the, the wrestling of Abdel Wahab, especially a guy that was slowing down as much as Abdel Wahab was. Now, hindsight, Abdel Wahab actually tested positive for some bad substances and that fight was turn, overturned to a no contest. So technically, Mays is not coming off that Hamdi Abdel Wahab loss, uh, according to his record. Mays is a hybrid heavyweight. You know, he moves very well for this higher division uh, or for this heavyweight division. He can go the full 15 minutes if he needs to. And he does a good job of showcasing all aspects of MMA. He moves well from the outside, throws in combinations, and he can land takedowns when he needs to. You know, his I'd say his best performance to date was his performance against Josh Parisian, where he was able to take him down whenever he wanted to, grind him out from on top, and then posture up uh, in that third round and finish Josh Parisian with some big strikes from on top. I, I like that style of maze. It's can he continue to enforce that style and utilize it against higher levels of opponents because that will truly tell you know, how far he can make it in this division. He's only 31, and he has a 500 UFC record through four UFC opponents, but I think through some solid training, some more uh, f- um, some more tailored training, especially with those guys down at Jackson Wink, that will allow him to uh, get those positions that he needs and be more effective in uh, his fights. I like what I see with him, and I think he has some decent enough potential, especially more than people originally expected from him earlier on in his UFC career. I want to be a little bit more confident on the Dontel Mays fight or side of this fight, but it's just too hard for me. Because like, if he doesn't get those takedowns, the Augusto Sakai striking is definitely going to frustrate him and potentially break him and potentially even finish him. But I like the more tools that Mays brings to the table. If he can stay on his bicycle, land some combination striking from the outside, utilize his distance, uh, maybe his speed. I think he might have a little bit of a speed advantage, but not by a whole lot. If he can stick and move and then eventually land the takedowns when he needs to, he could definitely grind out Sakai over 15 minutes. Uh, you know, he could put on a similar performance to the Josh Parisian fight. But the difference is Sakai is a much more dangerous striker than Josh Parisian. And I think he might be a little bit harder to get to the ground. But once he lands that first takedown, I think it's going to get easier and easier for Maze to get that top position. So prediction is going to be Maze, Maze by decision, not with a whole lot of confidence, but hedging that with Sakai by knockout is not a bad way to approach this fight. Moving over to our co-main event of the evening, which takes place in the middleweight division, we got 23-4 and Andre Munez going up against 20-5 and Brandon Allen. Starting off on the hype train side, Andre Munez, he's put together a very solid record in the UFC with a five-fight winning streak, and most notably for snapping the arm of Jacare Souza back in May of 2021. He, you know, kind of stumbled in his first couple UFC fights in regards to the performances that he had, even by getting his hand raised, especially in that very sloppy and ugly fight against Antonio Ojo. However, over his last couple of fights, he's really been creating this image that he's a very difficult opponent once fight hit, fights hit the ground. He's very active with throwing submissions off of his back and even more uh, dominant when he's able to secure positions from on top. 
We saw his fight against Uriah Hall where he was able to control the majority of that fight. And even when the fight was in the striking realm, it seemed like he muzzled Uriah Hall from Hall's fear of potentially getting taken down and eventually getting controlled. But that allowed Munez to continue to chip away at him and get his hand raised by decision that night. But I'm still not 100% sold on him. Like... His sky-high confidence over his last couple of fights are obviously going to be a good positive for him going into these future fights. But I'm, you know, I, I still have some question marks about his striking. I have his question marks about dealing with guys that are going to be able to stop the takedowns that are coming his way or, or coming their way or, you know, being able to nullify the jiu-jitsu game that he's going to potentially put on them. Uh, you know, I, I, I think he's a, a solid talent, but he has a little bit more to prove f- to me against higher levels of opponents um is brendan allen going to be that guy maybe so i'm curious to see what kind of performance we get out of him in this fight speaking of brendan allen he ended his 2021 by being upset by chris curtis uh by getting knocked out that night but he ended up batting a very clean 2022 by going three and on his in that campaign and finishing two of his opponents He's continued to show progress in his striking game, which was the weakest part of his game when he made it to the UFC, as he was originally known as a grappler who was able to take guys to the ground and utilize his superior jiu-jitsu game. But you see the confidence in which he throws his combinations and the power and confidence that he throws his uh, kicks with, and I think that's allowed him to be more confident throughout his fights because he feels even more comfortable in the striking realm. But it was two two superior strikers that were able to beat him, and Sean Strickland and um, uh, geez, I why am I blanking on the other guy that beat him? Oh, Chris Curtis, obviously. Um, but he has shown that he can beat superior strikers like Jotko, but he just needs to get fights to the ground as soon as he can, so that he doesn't have to deal with the striking uh, as much. He's reliable against lower-level talent, but I'll be wary against on him whenever he fights higher-level opponents, especially ranked opponents in this UFC's middleweight division. He's progressing, so I don't want to completely count him out, uh, but I'm curious to see how he deals with somebody with the jiu-jitsu game and dangerous grappling game of Andre Munez. I'm not hating on anybody at all looking to take an underdog shot here on Brendan Allen because I do think that there is some recency bias mixed in with some hype tax on the Andre Muniz side and how can you not, right? He's on a five-fight winning streak and snap chalk raised Sousa's arm, like I said. And so he's looked good while doing it, but I think a lot of that price tag has to do with his hype. And Brendan Allen has the jiu-jitsu to potentially hang with Munez should this fight hit this hit the ground. And I think that Brendan Allen also has the superior striking here where he could possibly even touch up Andre Munez from the outside, similar to what he did against Punahale Soriano en route to a decision victory. But... I, I am slowly starting to believe in Munez's uh, ability to control opponents when fights hit the ground. And I think that's where we'll see Brendan Allen potentially struggle. He is live to get out of those bad positions. But until I see it against higher levels of competition from Brendan Allen, I'm going to just stay steadfast on that. I'm just going to just sit on the outside and watch these fights. I have no intentions of taking the chalk on the Andre Munez side, but I do believe he wins this fight and I do believe he wins it by decision. Maybe looking at the overs in this matchup, not a bad way to go about it either. Time for the main event of the evening, which goes down in the light heavyweight division. We got 29-9 and Nikita Krylov going up against 21-7 and Ryan Spann. Starting off on the Krilov side, it's crazy to see this new evolution of Krilov ever since he returned to the UFC. 
Obviously, he utilizes more of a grapple-heavy style compared to the reckless striking style that he showcased in his first stint with the company. Just to give you guys an idea of how much he has changed with his approach, in his initial nine fights in the UFC, he went one of six on takedowns. Upon returning in 2018, he has attempted seven times the amount of takedowns and landed 38% of them, specifically going 16 of 42 on takedowns in all of his eight fights since returning to the promotion. It's clear that he prefers to get fights down to a spot where he can be more dominant and really nullify the potential of a Hail Mary KO from the outside or his opponents taking advantage of a maybe uh, a potential striking advantage that they have. But Krilov's striking game is not that bad either. He throws in good combinations, he throws in long combinations, and he utilizes his range very well. I'm impressed with what I see from his striking game, but I'm even more impressed with his ability to, you know, suck up his pride in terms of wanting to put on entertaining fights and going out there and just trying to grind out a victory, whether it's boring or not. Obviously, the big uh, red flag was the fact that he tried to do it against Paul Craig as well, putting that fight into a position which was the only place Paul Craig could win that fight. Krolov was the far superior striker in that matchup, yet he still decided to go into the jaws of defeat by taking Paul Craig to the ground, and he eventually paid for it by getting submitted by him uh, just in the last minute of that first round. But I still like this grapple-heavy style by Krilov because it doesn't allow his opponents many opportunities to look good for the judges, nor an opportunity for them to find a winning submission off of their back or a uh, potential KO off their back of any sort. Flipping on over to the Ryan Spann side of things, he's running a two-fight winning streak, and he's hoping to get his first UFC main event victory in his second attempt. Obviously, the first time was when he got submitted by Anthony Smith, and it seemed to come pretty easily for Smith as he finished him in the first round. Speaking of first rounds, that's usually all it takes in Ryan Spann's fights, as all five of his last fights have finished inside the first, first minute. Six of his nine UFC fights have finished, or sorry, not the first minute, but the first, uh, the opening minutes of the first round. Uh, six of his nine fights have finished in the first round as well. He's definitely a, a kill or be killed fighter, and he's not really the most impressive when fights do go to a decision, although he's been able to get wins in those fights, but he almost lost the decision that he had against Sam Alvey. It was a very close fight, and you can see that he definitely slows down as fights start to go on. But it's very important for him to try to get fights done early because he doesn't really put together a good enough body of work against higher level of competition to be able to warrant a decision should fights go the full 15 minutes or in this case a full 25 minutes i, I like his finishing capabilities early in fights but as an overall fighter another guy that really just gets away with the physical aspects of his game being the big brooding light heavyweight that he is the strong guy that he is and the big power that he throws but Another aspect of his game that people need to worry about is his nasty guillotine choke. He's been able to dispatch of a couple of opponents who have gotten a little bit too overzealous with their takedown attempts, a little bit too desperate with their takedown attempts, similar to what we saw from Devin Clark and Iwan Kutilaba a couple of fights ago. So uh, again, span very dangerous in the opening minutes of a fight, but as an overall MMA fighter, I don't rate him that highly. 
I was originally skeptical in terms of picking the Nikita Krylov side here because the early finishing danger from the Ryan Spann side was looming large in my mind. But I do like just the tenacity and aggressiveness in which Krylov looks for these takedowns. And he's going to have to be very careful in terms of that Ryan Spann guillotine, which is eventually going to latch on at a certain point. So having that as a hedge is not a bad idea. But I still think that we'll see Krylov continuously land these takedowns, get that top control, and eventually find a finish maybe in the second or third round of this matchup. It's very dangerous though, right? It's it's very dangerous. He has all the tools and all the means to win this fight without much hiccup. It's just that early going that we have to worry about with Ryan Spann. If Krilov can put that pace and pressure on him early, grind him to the bone, I think it's going to be easier for Krilov to pull away with this as this fight starts to go on. Stay away from that big power. Stay away from that guillotine choke. And this fight is in the bag for Nikita Krilov. So official prediction here is going to be Krilov by... I'm going to say third round TKO, maybe even a submission. And that is a wrap on the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the show as always. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, the Lucky Trinity hit last week. That's one for one now. I believe that's like a plus 0.25 unit if you want to go by units as well here. Uh, hoping to continue the momentum of that. So look out for the Lucky Trinity on Thursday. And then the three best prop bets coming out on Friday as well. Oh, wait. There's also Bellator 291 going down this weekend. So look out for a lock cast for that card. I believe as of right now, they have 17 or 18 fights. So look for that podcast to possibly come out on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. But I will be breaking that card down in full for you guys. Stay tuned. Appreciate you guys as always. And I'll catch you guys later this week. Peace.